now the weekend and plenty from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. My impressions of her were that she was really a remarkable woman with a, a very strong sense of integrity and purpose to serve her people, which she did all her life and won their affection and won the affection of people around the world. Well, I actually just had to do an interview where I ate a bunch of snacks from Ireland and the UK and I had to compare both and pick a winner. This is a once-off, although albeit five, in that the setup that he has here hasn't been witnessed anywhere else in the no, world. No, it's a total brand new stage yeah. first time he's seen it was when he was here two days ago yeah. walked into the Croker seen it it's the width of Hill 16 it's going to be some show and we'll start in the morning. Gavin Jennings was broadcasting from London as the UK begins its first days of national mourning. And from Galway President Michael D Higgins on the death of Britain's Elizabeth II. Welcome back to London, where, as Carol heard earlier from people gathering outside Buckingham Palace on the other side of the large gardens across the road from where we're talking to this morning at the Irish Embassy, people here are starting their day with the constant of their lives gone. The longest serving head of state here, Queen Elizabeth's reign spanned the austerity of post-war Britain, the fall of their empire, the troubles, the Thatcher and Blair eras, and more recently, the pandemic. We heard too about how her relationship with Ireland and the huge Irish community here changed during those 70 years, culminating in her visit to Ireland in 2011 and the reciprocal visit of President Michael D. Higgins here three years later, both firsts since Ireland's independence from Britain. And the President joins us now from Galway. Uktaron, good morning. Good morning. And thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland today. How will you remember the Queen? I think, above all else, it is of the extraordinary achievement she had of giving such a long service in, as you have said, very, very significant conditions of change, being incredibly well-informed. But also maybe, I think, the exceptional part of it all was combining this sense of formality and duty with a great capacity for connection with the people. And uh, this is, was very, very much evident to Sabina and I when we visited in, in, in 2014, where at a certain point uh, you go beyond as a door and it, it, it's Prince, Prince Philip and herself, in fact, actually make the arrangements and show you where you are. And so there was that capacity to bridge the formal and the informal, but and also, of course, uh, till she lives a great heritage of affection from both the, the people in Britain and the heads of state with, with, with which she dealt with. I do think, as well, maybe <coughs> I, the det- her sense of detail uh, was very interesting because the preparations that she, she was involved in between 2011-14 were complex. They required some subtlety and very good diplomacy. Uh, For example, uh, after the visit in 2011, not everybody was in a position to 
shake her hands, but she was very insist she was very anxious uh, that the return visit uh, would happen, which of course I immediately said yes to. But she also extended it. It's a four day visit, and there were lovely parts of it in a way uh, where I could. There is a splendid photograph of her. I wish was used more as she's saying goodbye to Sabina and I. Will you see her? She shared a joke with Sabina and she's laughing and so on. And these are, to be able to, if you like, cover all of these different areas of human interaction and humanity, that's a very, very significant achievement. And of course, as President of Ireland yesterday, I issued my statement sending the deepest sympathy of the people of Ireland and indeed of ourselves to, um, to King Charles and the royal family and indeed the people of Britain. How did she have to define or in fact change the relationship between us and our neighbours and former rulers? Well, one of the things I recall very clearly in the conversations, I remember a visit we made to the Lyric Theatre. Uh, the Majesty and I are joint patrons of Corporation Ireland, and there were matters to be fixed up in relation uh, to how, uh, if allowed, I think there she would be on a, a, a visit. We re- she began her state visit at lunchtime so that we could get our business done in the morning and and so on. And we're waiting uh, there, and she was more than once very anxious. Things must continue. Uh, and indeed, uh, in the private conversations we had in Windsor, uh, she would occasionally say to it must be kept going. She was very conscious that what had been achieved would not uh, uh, would not be, uh, if you like, left uh, lying there. I think you asked me how she had... Cha- she was mentioned in, of course, the, the speeches we exchanged at the formal dinner she went to pains to point out how the contribution of the, the Irish had made in relation to building Britain, the, the hundreds of thousands of families worked in the health services and the building roads and so forth. And then, of course, she had, of course, back in 2011, made that extraordinary statement that, you know, if things were being done again, they would be done differently or perhaps not at all. And... I found during those four days very, very much not a great deal, not just a great deal of warmth, but an, excep- an exceptional regard that Ireland and Britain were, to, were in a new place. And what is fascinating about uh, somebody of a great age, indeed she was, uh, was her, her knowledge of history. Uh, people mightn't... No, but she was very conscious of that. that the, her use of the Irish language in 2011 was not accidental because research had gone into the fact that Queen Elizabeth I and receiving the Irish chieftains had had a glossary of Irish terms uh, uh, for dealing with uh, with matters. And so you, you, the other part of it, I think, was in relation to the contemporary world. Uh, she's incredibly uh, uh, well, uh, well informed. And there were lovely, soft, warm parts of it too, I remember very, very much. I had a, a, a morning off, and um, because we are interested uh, in horses, and she arranged for me uh, to visit Andrew Balding uh, 
uh, Andrew Boulding's um, stables where I gave a presentation of the the the, the, the Irish President's racing colours, which I had which had been restored, and we had a discussion afterwards uh, about uh, about I had I had given her a. And a sculpture of Achel that was my my one of my presents and but no it was i i think if uh, i think if her is somebody who's just put in so much in yes in in in, in duty and so but when able to do so by keeping so much of human relationships that were important to people at every level and uh, she has leaves a great heritage and the affection in which she will be held and uh, it was was indeed well well earned. And I so want to wish uh, uh, Charles, who had had many meetings with and many many conversations, and who was very interested in keeping these better relationships uh, between our peoples going. I want to w- uh, wish him and Queen Camilla every uh, every success. And of course, this will be an extremely extremely sad time for them all. Indeed, no, yes. these visits. Uh, were so important. There is no doubt whatsoever that they mark a very significant turning point and uh, something that offers full of prospects and possibilities. President Michael D. Higgins speaking to Gavin Jennings on Morning Ireland. Then later, Ryan Tuberty. I met her very, very briefly in the Guinness storehouse when she I was showing her our Dublin through the windows, if you like. We went on a tour around um, and she was very nice. She said one word to me and that was did you were I was told all sorts of things about how to address her, how not to address her, where to look, how to shake a hand, where to stand. But actually the picture I put up on Instagram, she was she completely eyeballed me and gave the most charming smile. And when I asked her at one point, did you enjoy your trip to Trinity, which I believe I wasn't meant, meant to or allowed to ask, but I couldn't help myself. She said one word and that was it. She said, Splendid. Just like that. Splendid. In a most lovely, grandmotherly way. And uh, she was on her way. Um, and um, I remember talking in 2014. We did a show from Belfast, a radio show. And as it happens, the Queen was visiting Belfast that day too. And we managed to get on the phone to Martin McGuinness, the late Martin McGuinness of Sinn Féin, uh, who was the, at the time, Deputy First Minister, Minister to Northern Ireland at the time. Do you remember when Northern Ireland had, had relatively stable governments and people took their jobs and, and, and got on with it? And he was there and he very kindly took our call. And he was on he was en route, as it happens, in the car to meet the Queen in Crumlin Road Prison um, that morning. And this is the question I asked him and his answer gives us a bit of insight into... And I, I think this question and this answer pulls in a lot of the story in terms of Ireland, peace process, the reimagining of our relationship with the UK through the delicate dignity of Queen Elizabeth. Is it hard to separate her as a as a head of state as opposed to a a, a pleasant woman you might meet in a room over coffee? Well, I, mean, I think we're always conscious that she is uh, the head of the, the British state, but she is also a very pleasant woman. And uh, I've met her now three times, but this was uh, a one-to-one engagement which lasted almost uh, 15 minutes. And uh, obviously, given the visit to Dublin and to Cork, uh, the meeting I had with her in Belfast and in uh, Winter Palace, and and again last night, it's quite obvious to me that I am speaking to someone who is a huge supporter of the peace process and who recognises the symbolic importance of big acts of reconciliation. And I think these 
relationships are very, very important. And mm-hmm. I think the relationship I have with now with Queen Elizabeth is something that uh, both she and I value. Well, big words. I mean, the things you didn't think you'd ever expect, uh, you know, that sense of um, friendship between two people who really you wouldn't have thought you'd ever hear those words coming out of Martin McGuinness's mouth once upon a time. And uh, now they have both gone to meet their makers. Um, so uh, that is, uh, we, live in, we are living in extraordinary times. Ryan Tupperty there. Then later, Claire Byrne was talking to former President of Ireland, Mary Robinson. Can you take us back to 1996? Because that was the year of your first official visit to Britain. What were your own main impressions of Queen Elizabeth when you met her on that occasion? Well, in many ways, Claire, um, I'd like to go back further because... Uh, in 1993, in May 1993, um, I was invited uh, by the Queen to come and I knew it was going to be have a cup of tea with her and then be much photographed. And remember, 1993 was when there was still conflict and indeed not long before that, there had been a Warrington bombing um, in February uh, which had killed two small boys, Jonathan Bell and Tim Parry, an IRA bombing with no warning. It was a shocking event. And I remember going to a memorial service um, only a week or so later, which was attended by the Duke of Edinburgh and by Prince Charles. So that was the context of a, an invitation in May, 27th of May, 1993. It became a huge event because I was photographed with the Queen, um, two heads of state side by side, and uh, it went all around the world at the time. And then... Uh, Later, as you mentioned, um, I was invited for an official visit by um, the then Prime Minister, John Major, um, beginning on the 9th of June, 1996. And that began with official functions such as a lunch in Downing Street. um, And the following day, uh, we were invited to an official uh, lunch um, with the Queen um, in Buckingham Palace. And I remember uh, she was with Prince Edward, And Nick was with me, of course. And before that, there was a symbolic event of inspecting a guard of honour in the courtyard at Buckingham Palace. And the regiment of the Irish Guard was lined up in full dress uniform. um, And uh, they played the uh, national anthem, Aron de Vian. And it was just a stunning moment at the time Mm -hmm. to hear that. And so many people, uh, you know, felt, you know, again, a pride. And then, of course, that was followed with uh, her wonderful state visit, the Queen's wonderful state visit to Ireland with the Duke of Edinburgh in 2011 uh, with uh, President Mary McAleese and our own president going um, subsequently on his state visit. So it was all building up. But the, the, the visit in 1993 was to me an extraordinary effort by the Queen to help reconciliation because she unusually, um, having invited for tea, came down for the photographs uh, with me. And what were your impressions of her? My impressions of her were that she was really a remarkable woman with a a very strong sense of integrity and purpose to serve her people, which she did all her life and won their affection and won the affection of people around the world. But she was relevant to every age and she had a great capacity uh, to make people feel at ease. When Nick and I came into the formal drawing room where she was to have the tea, you know, the, the big smile and, you know, I, I felt very proud then um, as president of Ireland um, to meet with her in that, in that capacity. But she really put us both at our ease. And she took us down afterwards in the lift herself. 
and I happened to notice that there was a small lift that there were two glass windows um, where the corgis would be able to see out. <laughs> there weren't any corgis in the lift. But, uh, and, you know, and then we, we met my son and we met Bride Rosney and, and my um, secretary uh, uh, and then went to the door. And I've never seen anything like the bank of fo- photographers outside. Mm. It was a very big event because it was, you know, part of trying to reconcile, but still doing so at a time when there was not peace and there had been this terrible bombing in Warrington. We have heard how in 2011 she appeared to be very happy to be here and very proud to be here. Could you tell from those previous meetings with her in 93 and 96 that she was very interested in Ireland? Oh, yes. In fact, I said to her um, that, you know, I I hoped that she would be able to visit and her face actually lit up and she said, oh, yes, I would very much wish for that. Um, And you know, that was in 93 and the same thing in 96, you know, again, reinforcing, um, hoping one day that she would be able to visit. There wasn't yet peace. Um, you know, the uh, Good Friday Agreement was in 1998. Um, so uh, uh, it, it wasn't appropriate at that time. And it took until 2011. But, you know, I remember at the beginning of her state visit in 2011, there was apprehension. There was, you know, there had been a, a false alarm of a possible explosion on a railway or something. Many of us were very worried. And it was her personal knowledge of what to do, the way she bowed her head in exactly the right way in the Garden of Remembrance. That was the moment that eased everything. And from then on, she was welcome. And later that day, I welcomed her as Chancellor of the University at Trinity College. Mm -hmm. And she was full of smiles and the crowd clapped as she arrived. And there was an even bigger crowd as she and Prince Philip were leaving, um, you know, a huge crowd outside and a very happy uh, smile. And I think that was the beginning of the, the happy part of her visit, if I could put it that way. But there had been the earlier tension. Yes, um, but, but, but that is, uh, and it is said across the board, that that moment was hugely significant in terms of British-Irish relationship. And, and that relationship has been hugely tested, of course, in recent years. So when we look ahead now, how challenging will that be for the next monarch, for King Charles III? And what role will he have to play in, in mending that relationship? Well, I know that Prince Charles, or King Charles, as he is now, would um, wish to continue um, in the way his mother did in promoting, in so far as possible, uh, reconciliation. Actually, the year after that um, event in Warrington, uh, Prince Charles, as he was then, and myself, we launched the Peace Project of Warrington, and it was very clear that he was very committed um, to what um, the father of Tim Parry, the little boy that was killed, Colin Parry, and his wife had launched. Um, And he has spoken many times on peace and, and reconciliation, I've no doubt, as King, he will continue in his mother's um, footsteps and want to. Former President Mary Robinson. Then later, Ray Darcy went back to an interview from 2020 of another former president, Mary McAleese, remembering the Queen's visit. Uh, now, now uh, you've seen and heard that clip from uh, 2011 uh, from Dublin Castle. It was the second uh, night, second day of the Queen's visit and she'd been in Crow Park and then she was attending a state dinner in Dublin Castle. She was the guest of honour, of course. And she gave a speech that evening. And the clip you've seen is Queen Elizabeth uh, speaking in Irish. Uh, which translates, as you know, President and Friends. Uh, and then she goes on, obviously, to finish off her speech in English. And we spoke to Mary McAleese, who was 
gobsmacked, flabbergasted by the Queen saying those words. And, and you know, when you were watching it, you're going, wow, she must have known that was coming. She, she must have known that was going to happen. Why does she look so surprised? Is she acting? Is it contrivance? Well, we spoke to Mary McAleese back in 2020 about her autobiography and she told us the story behind those words uh, uttered by Queen Elizabeth, a hook drawn August Akarda. Uh, and it, it's worth listening back to it. So, so just so you know, and it's important that you know, this is from 2020, which is two years ago. Uh, and it's former President of Ireland, Uke Drawn Heron, Mary McAleese, uh, talking about the Queen's visit uh, and her speaking in Irish, as in the Queen speaking in Irish. Uh, here we go. Well, I had suggested um, that, that that she would use um, a few, a couple of Irish words. Five I Irish felt, words. What was it? Uktaran yes. Akarda. Is it? Uktaran uh, Akarda. And um, I suggested that those words, um, that uh, small and simple though they were, that they w- they'd be the first words we would hear her say. And right. they were the first words we heard her say. And I felt that they would have huge healing capacity. And I tried to explain that um, uh, in the when we had meetings, you know, pr- uh, prior to uh, preparatory and planning meetings. But I was told emphatically that this was unlikely because precisely because it would be the first words and because Irish and the relationship with Britain was so, you know, had been so bad in the Praxis, past, yeah. in the Irish language, that if she got anything wrong, uh-huh. you know, if it all went wrong, then it would be terrible. And I understood that. And I said, I'm not going to push But then she sent me um, an emissary, um, Sir Edward Young, her personal, now her personal private secretary. um, And he, I I explained to him that I thought these five words uh, were important. On the same occasion, I also explained that I thought that she should, uh, that that, that I asked, would would she consider going to Croke Park? And, uh, And I explained why. And he went. He came back to me and he said, "Yeah, Croke Park would be. He should love to go to Croke Park. She she understood the significance of it, obviously, and uh, she's very well read on Ireland. And um, but he said, look, the Irish language thing is just. Um, we're just terrified that if you know that that she it would it seem like yes. if she got it wrong. It would yeah. seem like an insult. And I immediately said to him, forget it. Right. I'm not going to push it. It was only an idea. I don't want her to take any point. I'm not taking any point here. I'm accepting absolutely the bona fides. We leave it at that. But then." <laughs> Then, the as happens, you know, every day of the week in any house in Ireland, the um, High Commissioner of Islamabad, the of British High Commissioner, yes, landed to our house <laughs> on his way from, as you do, from Islamabad <laughs> to London. Right. And he said to me, um, Edward Young's a friend of mine, he said that you had five words in the Irish language. And I said to him, don't you be raising that now. He's an old friend of mine. I said, don't you be raising that now because this subject's closed. Ah, he said, Edward just wants the five words written out, he said, so that he'll have it for the record. So he took a scrappy envelope, I kid you not, from his, from his pocket, which he still has, incidentally, now in Perth. And um, he gave it to me and I wrote the, four, I wrote the five words out. I wrote the of Zakarja. And phonetically, guy, phonetically, I hope. I wrote them out phonetically. Yes. yes. And um, he took, he stuck it in his pocket, and that was the last I heard of that. Until the night. Until right. I was sitting there on the night, and when she got up, and I, 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 I still can't believe how they played me because my own staff was in on it, you know, um, and they were all sitting waiting for the moment whenever she spoke Irish, and I would have a heart attack, mm. um, because in fact earlier that day I had given her as a gift a little replica of a book that was prepared for Queen Elizabeth I when she met Gronawail. Right. It was a little primer in Irish. And that was the gift that we had given her. 
So when she sat down, I said to her, you were a quick learner. Um, <laughs> Very good. And she, she, she took, she was really delighted that she'd been able to, you know, yeah. play a bit of divilment, a bit of divilment, but also two good parts. She's put a, put a lot of effort into getting the pronunciation absolutely right. She put a lot of effort into making the decision to use the language um, as she did the same with Croke Park, you know, with going yeah. to Croke Park, she knew exactly how those things would matter, how deep they would go. Mm. And those words again. Aukteroin. Argus Akoiza. And that's Mary McAleese in the background going, wow, wow. And in that speech uh, on the 18th of May 2011, Queen Elizabeth would not say, uh, indeed, so much of this visit reminds us of the complexity of our history. It is a sad and regrettable reality that throughout history, our islands have faced heartache, turbulence and loss. And she went on to say, with the benefit of historical hindsight, we can all see things which we would wish would have been done differently or not at all. Um, yeah, so that's the, the end of the second Elizabethan age. From the Ray Darcy Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, Samantha Library was in Tala for the funerals of 18-year-old Lisa Cash and her 8-year-old twin siblings, Chelsea and Christy Cawley. Samantha, thank you for joining us. Will you describe the scene to us firstly? Well, Claire, hundreds of mourners gathered in and around St. David's Church in Brookfield in Tala this morning as the service got underway at 10 o'clock. And they were all greeted by a very poignant scene outside. There were three white horse-drawn carriages waiting outside the church and just inside the church you could see three white coffins in front of the altar, those coffins containing the bodies of 18-year-old Lisa Cash and her 8-year-old twin siblings Christy and Chelsea Cawley and both Christy and Chelsea had been in this very church just four months ago making their Holy Communion. Um, beside the coffins there were three heart-shaped frames showing the photographs that we've seen um, so often over the past week um, of them celebrating their communion day and their sister celebrating her birthday. And alongside those, there was photographs, teddy bears and floral arrangements and some poems written in tribute to the three lives lost. The service began with a number of gifts being brought to the altar. There was a number of Elvis books brought up to represent Lisa's love of, of Elvis and his music and a driving lesson um, book which um, represented, we were told, um, her number of attempts at, dry, at, at passing her driving test. There were football gloves brought in memory of Christy and a cushion and a teddy representing the life of Chelsea. Now outside many friends and family gathered and they were wearing t-shirts with the faces of the, the children and, and their older sister on it. There was posters on cars and people carrying balloons around the car park too. Now, Father O'Driscoll was celebrating the Mass there today. Can you tell us a little bit about what he said? That's right. Father Paul O'Driscoll is the chaplain of the Parish of the Travelling People and during his short homily he paid tribute to the sibling's 14-year-old brother who he said showed bravery and strength to raise the alarm on the day of the tragedy. And he also spoke of the impact this crisis had on the community. He said these events were unexpected that people in the community were unprepared for what had happened and that there was nothing anyone could do to stop it happening. We all... Sorry. No, go ahead, Samantha. 
we also heard from Father Bill O'Shocknessy, who is the parish priest here at St. Aidan's, and he spoke of how this tragedy had dealt a grievous blow to the community that echoed up and down the country. And he thanked the community for their extraordinary support and friendship that they'd shown in the past week. There was also mentions during the prayers of the faithful for the emergency services and the local schools and teachers that have been so, so important in, in showing support here. Okay, and tell us a little, Samantha, about how the service ended today. Well, there was um, tributes paid from Lisa's friends, Mary and Natasha, during the service. Um, Mary said she was lost for words and her heart was shattered. Natasha said she felt like she was living in a nightmare that they, they couldn't wake up for. And she said Lisa had so much planned for the future and the twins were Lisa's whole life. Um, there was music played as the three white coffins were removed from the church and they were placed into three white horse-drawn carriages and they were followed by a, a procession of family and friends and dozens of motorbikes. We understand the traffic is still backed up here to the church at the moment, but that that cortege is passing the family home at the moment. Mm-hmm. And after that, it will be making its way to Boherneberine Cemetery, where Lisa Cash, okay. Christy and Chelsea Cawley will be laid right. to rest. Samantha Library from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan Tipperty was catching up with superstar Saoirse Ronan about her new film, See How They Run, Lockdowns and Tato. Well, I actually just had to do an interview where I ate a bunch of snacks from Ireland and the UK and I had to compare both and pick a winner. I want to know a little bit about this because I've seen it on YouTube um, with with various other personalities. So what Irish Uh, snacks do they give you? They gave me Tato. Obviously. Which one? On a sandwich. Oh, very good. Butter or no butter? And I and I gave a shout out to the Tato pop-up shop. <laughs> what else did they give you from Ireland? Huh? What else did they give you from Ireland? So Tato, Ballymaloo, um, Jam Mallows, um, Barn Brack, which I don't really like. So that lost that round. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was the what was the, oh, last thing then on the food thing, just as we're here, what was the most awful thing from the UK? Um, the worst thing they gave me a thing which I do actually like but it's very salty called Gentleman's Relish well I listen I think we should move on to talk about the movie <laughs> I, I, I do you know what I was so happy about going to see this movie see how they run it was that I'd always like to see anything that you're in and that's not Plumas that's a true story secondly I had no idea what it was about because I chose not to read anything about it it's my favourite way of going to see a film oh great yes yeah. I think that's that's definitely a good way to go into a movie. No prejudgment. And then it comes on the screen and it's all 1950s, which is my bag. It's Agatha Christie completely. Uh, you're there doing like the funnies in your own accent. This is mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah, I insisted on using my own accent because I'm sure I've said to you in the past how scary I find comedy. And I think the only way I was willing to like properly give it a go was if I could use my own voice because mm. um, it's just it's just too many things to think about otherwise <laughs> so they let me use my own accent and um it was great it was it was I don't know it was really nice to finally enjoy being Irish and and also not having it be a thing that she's Irish mm. you know it's just it's never something that's commented on it's not really a part of her character which I 
greatly appreciate. Oh, it was lovely because, as you say, it could have been used for cheap gag against, you know, all right, Paddy, you know, what have you. But nothing of the yeah. sort occurs at all. No, it doesn't. And, you know, when we meet Stalker at first, my character, mm-hmm. she is incredibly green. She's very over-enthusiastic. She's quite overwhelmed by the case that she's been handed. Um, She's also been partnered with someone who is pretty jaded and doesn't really have a love for the job anymore. Um, And she's at the very beginning of her career where she's the complete opposite. Um, And so she makes like quite a few kind of mistakes. She misjudges quite a few things to begin with, but ultimately sort of becomes one of the heroes of the piece. And um, yeah, I just, I really, I really love her journey as a character. And you sort of think she's one thing and then you start to learn more about her life um, away from the job and you have a whole new perspective on her. It's that lovely 1950s thing, not lovely as in a way, but it's that 1950s thing where a lot of people are damaged still after the war and there's a lot of loss and there's a lot of sadness. I mean, I know I said it's it's a comedy, but it's it's not without its nuance. No, that's very true. And, you know, it's not something that is um, is sort of milked at all. No. But I, I do like that that is the backdrop for, you know, a sort of what, what could seem like a sort of harmless comedy. It's... Um, you know, it's got a bit of depth to it, certainly with those two main characters that Sam and I play. So, so it's got it's it's also got that lovely uh, Agatha Christie whodunit feel to it throughout. So it's kind of loyal to that to that that genre, if you like. And so I was trying to figure out when I knew I was going to be talking to you about this film. When you read the script initially, um, and you saw Constable Stalker, the character you're going to play. Um, did you say like I'm you know I'm in the mood for doing something completely different? I, you know I've kind of all your roles tend to be very different. In fairness, you don't have a, have a sort of uh, repeat performance, which is great. But this one just struck me as being you saying no, I really want to kind of let loose a little bit in in a totally different way. Is that fair to say or? Yeah, I think so. You know, I was right in the middle of lockdown and there were so many projects across the board that got shelved or just got completely cancelled or were pushed so much that, you know, original people that were involved had to drop out and it became a different project or whatever. And when this came along, um, I initially was incredibly excited about it before I even read the script because of Tom George, the director, who did the incredible BBC Three series, This Country, which Mm. I absolutely love. Um, And so I'm a huge fan of his and his style of comedy. Um, And then when I read the script, it just was so easy to read. It sort of bounced off the page and everything was so sort of like tight and funny and paced and you know everyone had a couple of scenes where they really got to shine and it really felt like a true ensemble and I just I don't know I don't know if like being part of something that was you know involved a huge cast and everyone had their moment was something that I yearned for more because I was not around anyone at the time and was kind of desperate for that sense of community even Mm. more on screen. And Ryan asked Saoirse about the positive effects of the arts in times of stress. You know, you you mentioned something about trying to kind of get out of the shadow of pandemic and get into meeting with people again. And and, um, since the toy show in the last couple of years has raised a lot of money for for children's charities around Ireland, 
um, north and south. And one of the things I've learned, and, and I know this is close to your heart in some ways, is I, I didn't realise it because I, I don't work in, move in your world, is how acting, music, movement can help kids uh, evolve and grow and mature, especially kids who are shy, bullied or unhappy. It just brings them somewhere else. You, you probably have seen this doing workshops and that kind of thing. I, I, I've been bowled over by it. You've been acting since you were such a young, a young person, but it, it, I've been really taken aback by it. It's, it's actually quite moving to see what all of this can do. Yeah, because I think what comes with that sort of expression is community and people helping one another to bring the best out in your peers mm. and um, to find any sort of creative expression, no matter what it is, or even if you're any good at it or not, is um, is inc- I think it's incredibly important for a child's growth. Um, and, you know, I was in a very sort of surreal environment some of the time growing up, but actually what an amazing place to be a kid, to be surrounded by adults that were very comfortable, you know, letting go of their inhibitions and being sort of silly and feeling nerves, but like working through it anyway and creating something out of that feeling. Like it's, I think it's quite a healthy outlook if you use it in the right way and you don't get too in your head about things. And I I mean, I'm prepping for something right now and I'm working with Wayne McGregor again, who's an incredible choreographer over in the UK. And he worked with me on Mary Queen of Scots as well. And the reason why I love using him is that I am only thinking about what my body is doing, how it feels to be the person that I am at that point in time. And it means that I'm not just sort of like getting lost in my thoughts. Mm. And, you know, whether a kid finds that through dance, acting, through football or any other sort of sport, um, that's incredible. And like, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard of the children's workshop Cinemagic. Yes. Um, that works with children who want to get into the film industry of all ages. It spans from very young up until sort of early teens, I think. Mm. And um, they were motivated by basically bringing both communities in the North together to um, work on something creative and artistic and it's it's been an incredible success over the last few years so yeah I've definitely been witness to that yeah you know since I was young did you did you miss out do you think on much given your how, how quickly immersed you got into the world do you can ever think oh I wish I went to Irish college I wish I could hang out a longitude or you know all of those yeah. things are you you do you kind of felt that a little bit yeah, of course I do. I mean, I have been to Longitude, so I don't feel like Sorry. I missed out on that. I, I go, Sorry. Yeah, I go, I go to all the festivals, sure. But um, no, I do. Of course, you know, I, I do feel like there's things I've missed out on. But to be honest, like, you're always going to feel like you've missed out on something. And sure, there's things that I, especially when I was a teenager, that I wish I could have been part of more socially because it's such a formative time and it's like such what? an intense time. I think being part of younger social circles. I wasn't really around that as much, you know. Mm. Um, But even though I wasn't necessarily with a bunch of people my own age from like, say, I don't know, 15 to 18, it was only a few years, Mm. I was working with, yes, people who were older, but people who were very kind of free in their expression. And I really learned a lot from them. I mean, it wasn't like I was, you know, 
training to be a doctor or something like although yeah. I'm sure there's fun in that as well but like you know I was in like a play group essentially um but yeah there's there's always going to be things that you'll feel you've missed out on but you know whatever price you have to pay for doing something that you really love and you really feel kind of free doing uh, then I ultimately think that that's worth it. Saoirse Ronan on the Ryan Tuberty Show. Now, managing your budget with tech. Business journalist Adam Maguire was talking to Claire Byrne in the morning. With the upcoming budget and rising energy costs, we're all looking for new and better ways to save money. But can we use technology to save ourselves a few euros? I'm joined in the studio by Adam Maguire from RTE's business desk with lots of suggestions, Adam. So we've the rising energy costs causing many people to worry about what's going to happen over the next few months to their household budget. But you say there are some small ways that people can use tech to save themselves money. Yeah, I mean, people might think of tech as a bit of a drain on the resources. You know, the, the devices cost money, the broadband bill, the, the, the electricity bill and everything else. But there are a couple of ways to, to make it work. The disclaimer is that, you know, you're not going to undo all the damage that's going to come in in, in the bills. But I suppose anything you can do to, to help will, you know, shave a couple of euro off is a good thing. And, and a lot of these things are free. Uh, some cost a little bit of money, but, you know, it's usually you'll get a return on investment quite quickly, especially with the way yeah. Well, let's, at the moment. let's talk about the free stuff. Where should people start? Yeah, so the first thing people are always told when it comes to trying to save money is to draw up a budget. You know, it's not sexy, it's not exciting, but it's really the only way of knowing where your money is going and how much you have left and where you can make savings. So nothing wrong with doing that on pen and paper, but it gets messy very quickly. You could use a spreadsheet like Excel if you know your way around that and you're that way inclined. But a far easier option I find is, is some of the budgeting apps that are out there because you just input a couple of numbers and it makes a, you know, a nice visual kind of representation of your money you can tweak it and see well if I you know shave money off here what does that do and mm-hmm. how do I how much do I have left each week and it's it's right in your phone as well so you can really drill down you can track each uh, you know expense that you want to as well uh, and you can even link some of these to your bank account so it'll automatically do all that if you want to uh, some of these or many of these now do require a subscription fee or they're only a free trial but there are some free ones out there uh, a daily budget was one of the best ones I found full of features it does have a paid version but only for you know if you want to have it on your smartwatch so it's not really a, you know Necessary. So the app is called Daily Budget. Daily Budget is the name of the app, yeah. And, and it's really easy to use, free. And I said you can pay for extra features, but you don't really you don't need, need them. to. Okay, no. so that's the best one. That's called Daily Budget. That's an app. So we have our budget now. What do we do next? Yeah, so it's now you're looking at ways to try and shave a few quid off your, your outgoings. And loads of apps out there can help you do that. Uh, a couple of examples in, in kind of groceries and food, Too Good To Go and Olio. They're, now, they're actually focused on reducing food waste. But by virtue of that, you can reduce money, uh, the money you're spending as well. Uh, too good to go uh, lets shops cafes and restaurants offer up their their leftover food that's still perfectly fine to eat but maybe not you know going to be okay to to sell at full price uh, up on on the app at a steep discount the downside is for That's the consumer. Big news now. I didn't know about this. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people didn't either. Are yeah. they are they widely used yeah, by, well, it's, by it's, shops? And a lot of restaurant cafes and restaurants. They mainly seem to be rolled out in the cities, but they're slowly spreading out across the country. Download it. You can check what's available in your location. You know, set a couple of kilometer radius. Too and good to go. Too good to go. Now the, the the downside is you don't know exactly what you're going to get. But if you're buying from a bakery, you'll have a fair idea. It might be a, a couple of loaves of bread or a couple of a couple of treats or something mm. like that, uh, which means you don't have to then you know pay full price 
price for that in the shop. And I've used it a few times. The stuff is really good. It's kind of like going into a baker at the end of the day, you know, and it's not quite fresh, but it's still yeah, delicious. Still and grand. Else. Still grand. Uh, Olio is the other one. This is for people to offer up their surplus food in their neighbourhoods. So if you have a load of stuff that you know you're not going to use before it goes out of date, rather than just dumping it, you can offer it to your neighbours. But there's also a lot of stuff coming from Tesco on that because they've partnered with the app. So again, their leftover stuff at the end of the day that's, that's not quite fresh is offered up through the app. You can then uh, go and collect it as well. This is a revelation. Yeah, so it's just it's just a way of you know saving a little bit of money. And Adam had some advice on supermarkets. If you're if you're a regular of a certain supermarket, you have their loyalty card. Download their app as well because it means that you have all those vouchers and coupons and everything right there, mm. rather than having to remember to bring which as they'll, well. They'll be keeping a close eye on what you're doing in the supermarket as well. Yeah, well, they do that anyway. <laughs> if you have the, if you have the loyalty card, a, a voucher cloud, another one pulls together all the vouchers and that 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 are available. The trick with a voucher is don't buy something because you have a voucher. Decide to buy something and then look and see if you have a voucher because you're not going to save money the other way around. Uh, it'll just reduce the cost. And price buy is another one to check out as well. If you're making a big purchase, it'll compare prices across different retailers. Now, the, the Irish comparisons aren't there anymore, but the UK and European ones are. So if you're buying a big appliance, say, check price buy and you might find that it's available for a lot cheaper somewhere else and you'll make a saving there too. Price buys, that's very useful as well for the, for the bigger purchases. Now, there'll be lots of people who are trying to stop themselves <laughs> spending money online and we've spoken about this before. You know things that you don't mean to buy but you're sitting there at nine o'clock yeah, scrolling. It, it's kind of the curse of, of tech is that it's just made yeah. it far too easy to, to, to buy stuff. Uh, but again, you can, you can turn the tech to your advantage. So uh, you still need self-control, you still need to be able to stop yourself but you can kind of help your, that, that process. So a lot of newish smartphones will have a built-in thing around what's called screen time. So ways of reducing the amount of time you spend looking at your phone or, or looking at specific apps. And within that, you can restrict the time that you can access an app or the amount of time that you can look at an app. I said, it's meant to be for screen time, but you can do it that if you know you have a habit of going on the evening browsing and end up spending uh, money that you don't need to spend, you can restrict access to the app. It won't block you completely, but it'll say to you, remind you that you've restricted access. It'll keep reminding you, you know, you've spent a lot of time looking at this app. <laughs> Just a little kind of Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder saying, saying, are you sure you want to keep looking at this? Another thing you can do is, uh, with, with some phones, you can actually make apps disappear at certain times or in certain locations from the, the phone altogether. There's a thing called Focus on the iPhone, which is an example of this. Again, it doesn't delete the app. It's still there if you want to go looking for it, but it just takes it away from right in front of you, takes away that temptation. And it's all about making it more difficult for you to spend the money rather than stopping okay. you completely. So that's the focus setting on, a, an, on, on iPhone. an iPhone. Yeah. Uh, now, paying energy bills, we're all thinking about what's going to happen over the next few months and tech can help in some ways to curb those costs. Yeah, a couple of ways you can do that. Some some are cheap or, or free, uh, and but even if they are cheap, you'll get a return quite quickly on the investments. So smart home tech is, is, is a bit of a catch-all term people will hear. A lot of this is kind of novelties or luxuries, but there are a few smart home devices that are actually really useful for saving money. Uh, a smart thermostat is probably the best example of that. So it works like a normal thermostat. You can set the, uh, the, the temperature, it triggers the boiler when the temperature falls below a certain level. But the smart bit means that you can control it from your phone or your tablet and it's much easier to set up a schedule and adjust mm -hmm. it and do all that rather than trying to mess with the dial but and I have the, the to little buttons. But buy a new thermostat now to get this. You, yeah, you will. And they're, they're about 100 to 200 euro. But check with your utility because a lot of these will offer uh, deals on these. And if you're switching utility, which people should really do as, as, as we keep reminding them, uh, the, uh, as part of that incentive, they might not give you a free uh, thermostat or a free uh, in, in install installation as well. There's also an SEAI grant of about 700 euro for for boiler controls, which you may be 
eligible for. So you can cut the cost uh, significantly or, or eliminate it altogether. And it's reckoned you're saving about 20% on your energy bill with a smart thermostat or, or compared to not having one. Very significant. So if you're spending one or 200 euro coming into the winter, you'd probably get that back quite quickly in mm-hmm. terms of the savings. And it just means you can control everything and you can, even when you're out of the house, you can turn off the heat so that, you know, it's not <laughs> running when you're not there. Leave all the people who are there Well, the yeah, cold. I mean, that's, that's their tough luck, really. You know, <laughs> if, if they don't have the phone, then tough. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's just a, a nice way of saving a little bit of money there and as well. And some of those can control, they'll control every radiator for you if you're really fancy. If you really want to, now you'll spend a good bit of money doing that. But if you really want to, you could have each room at different temperatures, turning off rooms you're not using, all that kind of stuff. But it, it, that'll cost you a fair bit. Adam Maguire from Today with Claire Byrne. And on Liveline in the afternoon, Joe was also looking at that historic visit of Britain's Queen Elizabeth to Ireland when he spoke to Olivia O'Leary. One of the most interesting moments in the visit was uh, journalist and broadcaster Olivia O'Leary, presenter, presenter of the poetry programme here in RT Radio 1. Uh, Olivia O'Leary uh, spoke um, our at the convention centre in Dublin for the concert, I think it was organised by Harry Crosby, the concert for Queen Elizabeth. Olivia, good afternoon. I know you're away at the minute, but good afternoon uh, to you. You, re- you you're, I'm reading again your speech, Olivia, in front of the Queen. That was quite cheeky. Well, it, maybe it was a little bit, Joe, but <laughs> I think I felt it was important to say, by the way, we're a republic. We do not yeah. bend the knee. And uh, it's great to see you and your grand woman and all that, but we are of a different tradition. I just felt that was important to say. And you you began by talking about a government minister who said, I will not curtsy, Uh, I I will not. And you then you you introduce a bit of history. You reminded people, as I said earlier, that the... When we heard the Irish Army officer call a guard of honour to attention, Dunbanreen Eilish, there was a... What a frisson, a, a sense of something old being laid to rest and something new beginning. Is is that your, still your sense of it, looking back, Olivia, 12 years ago? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, symbols matter yeah. very much. Um, and the symbolism of her name being said, Oskelga, was quite important, just as the words that she spoke in Irish were... Mm. So important. And I think, I mean, anybody my age, Joe, you're probably even too young to remember it, we would have been told at school about the tally sticks that were used for children in the 19th century going to the the British set-up national schools, where if you spoke Mm -hmm. a word of Irish during your school day, a little notch was put on the tally stick around your neck. And at the end of the day, if you'd done it six times, for instance, if you'd spoken Irish, you'd be slapped six times for having spoken Irish. So that was very powerful to hear the British Queen and Head of State use those few words of Irish. And I think what was terrific too is that she she did it well. You know, whatever she does, she does well. And she practised it. And the lady from Foreign Affairs, the protocol lady out in Farmley, was called up to the Queen's sitting room before the Queen left to come into that um, banquet to hear the Queen say, uh, and to tell her whether or not she was doing it right. And the protocol lady uh, was able to say, yes, ma'am, you are. Um, And uh, it was just that those few words, and I think, you know, I've been covering politics for an awful Mm. long time, but I don't think I ever before was as conscious of 
the power of symbols. And Mary Robinson, for instance, in her time understood it, and, and Mary McAleese. Mm-hmm. You know, if you are the, the titular head of state, you can't say an awful lot, but your mere presence is symbolic. And I think her presence here um, was, it was more powerful than even I believed it would be. And I would have been very much in favour of those links between Britain and Ireland being strengthened because we're all stronger together. Um, But I think the other thing that really helped was that this was an old lady and age is a leveller. Somehow or another, age makes everybody the same. And perhaps if she had come as a proud young queen, um, there might not have been the same warmth towards her. But suddenly you saw a lady who was stooped, who was, you know, terrifically uh, competent what she did. But she was like anybody's granny. And um, somehow or another, that made it even more acceptable. One was able to relate to her. Uh, and and you knew that this was an effort for her, but that she was she knew how important that visit was, Joe. She knew that could well have been the most important state visit she had ever made in her lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I remember Dick Spring telling me that he was at a lunch that involved the Queen and the Queen Mother not long after Mary Robinson had made the first okay. contacts and had gone and had tea with Green and everything. Dick would have been and Minister for Foreign Affairs. The Queen Mother was there time, and Dick yeah. was talking horses because he felt, you know, you should yeah. talk horses with the Queen around. And the Queen Mother was delighted and she said, oh, I'd love to go to Ireland. And the Queen leaned across and said, not before me, Mummy, I'm going Brilliant. first. Brilliant. And Dick Brilliant. knew from that That's... that she wanted to come. Olivia O'Leary from Liveline with Joe Duffy. And on the Ray Darcy show, it was the start of the Garth Brooks concerts in Croke Park. We have four Garth Brooks superfans here. Eamon Callery from Tala. How are you doing, Eamon? Great, Ray. Good to see you. you. Uh, Gavin Boyle from Donegal. How are you doing, Gavin? Great, Ray. Good to see you. you. Yes, Sandra Kelly from Westmead. How are you doing, Sandra? Great, thank you. And finally... The broccoli farmer himself, <laughs> Robert Carrick from Russian County Dublin. Thanks very much. How are you? You're all very welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sandra, I'm going to go to you first. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because you're a little bit reluctant about the whole thing. You're a big fan. But not you're, really. Not really. How many times are you going? Um, I'm going three. Does anybody else know that before now? Mm, my close family. <laughs> right. Now everybody knows. Yeah. So any, any up on three? Anybody going more mm. than three times? Possibly four. Possibly four, Gavin, yeah. Robert. Five, five, you got five, Eamon. Oh, just the one. Just the one, okay. It'd be a privilege for him to see me. <laughs> <laughs> so we've a one, we've a possible four. Yeah, a three and a five. Mm. Oh, man, you have the look of Gareth he does. about you, doesn't he? <laughs> Robert, so Broccoli yeah. Farmer. Yes. So you were walking, were you walking through the airport or where were you when you yeah, encountered um, him first? Yeah, I think we were 17. Uh, we were 17 and uh, a friend of mine's mum had organised a trip to go to Smithfield in London. It's a big machinery show. And my friend was mad about machinery. He said we'd head over. So four of us went over. And as we were going through the airport, the music shop on the right, Laren says, come here, he says, do you see this lad? He's nuts. He smashes guitars at the end of it and runs around like a mad thing. <laughs> and we looked at it and said, yeah, geez, so he's all right. So we were hooked after that. Right. So we started buying this tapes, CDs, whatever, after that. And I thought he was just incredible. Um like everything he stands for, um, his belief in God, 
things like that. He's a very thankful person. Um, he's humble. And I think his music in general, his words, songs, things like that is really, really good. They touch you? They're very good. I think there's meaning in all the songs and you start yeah. learning them and things like that. So, yeah, really, really enjoy it. Um, He's a sincere man, isn't he? I think so. Yeah. I think so. And I genuinely, as we were talking outside, I think in 2014, not going back to it, but just to make a point, he did cancel because he wasn't going to disappoint one section. And I think that was fair play. Mm. Disappointed as everyone was. But he's come back and he's here. And he's finishing the tour here. And I don't think you can say any more than that. No. Mm. Uh, and on top of that, you're in for a treat because this is a once-off, although albeit five, in that the setup that he has here hasn't been witnessed anywhere else in the no, world. No, it's a total brand new stage. Yeah. First time he's seen it was when he was here two days ago. Yeah. Walked into Croker, seen it. It's the width of Hill 16. It's going to be some show. Uh, and when you think about it, because he's such a sincere man and he's a thoughtful man, He's been mulling over this for eight years. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. He's had a lot of time to think about he it. Really. Has, hasn't he, Gavin? <laughs> yeah. He's going to deliver, isn't he? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. I can't see him not. And I think he's he's that invested in it now that it's 200% or nothing, really. So so your story with him, you were around 15, 16? Initially, yeah, when I heard him first in the early 90s and um, just grew up listening to him at home. And then the album started coming out and... He then was touring in 94 and I was to go to the concert, but um, I got sidelined um, on uh, that weekend. Because you, you were taking part in the final of the No Name Club's Host of the Year. And what for? <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, and some Egypt in a dicky bow was presenting it, was he? He was, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that, that was the only thing. It was kind of Gareth Brooks or Ray, Ray Darcy. Darcy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that so I, and, and I won because you had to go to that yes of course yeah I had no choice in that and, and did the rest of the family go to Garth Brooks on that occasion yeah they went on to the show and then they came down the following day down to Waterford the following day right and, and how did you do I won. Oh, you won. All right. I did one. Yeah. So you were no name club host of the year. Nineteen ninety four. Nineteen ninety four. Right. And I sang the dance as my party did piece. You? I did. Yeah. So I have heard you sing the dance. Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. And you still sing it as a party piece. Right? Every now and yeah, it would be in my kind of repertoire. More friends in low places is the party kind of the party <laughs> yes, song. Yeah. But yeah, I love the dance. Aha. Uh-huh. So so then in nineteen ninety seven. When yes. you came to Crow Park, yeah, you, you you made amends. That was yeah. What age were you then? I was twenty. Right. Yeah, I was 20 then, so it was great to get back and um, see him again and just experience it all. And it, it, it sounds to me like you had a moment there where, you know, it was nearly, you were elevated to a different level. Oh. What song was was he singing? I remember standing in the middle of Croke Park um, and he was singing If Tomorrow Never Comes. And I was in the middle and... And everybody's the, knowing every word. And everybody's singing, yeah. Garth Brooks, super fans from the Ray Darcy show. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.